Section nine of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume four by James Boswell, Section nine. An election for Ayrshire, my own county, was this spring tried upon a petition before a committee of the House of Commons. I was one of the counsel for the sitting member, and took the liberty of previously stating different points to Johnson, who never failed to see them clearly, and to supply me with some good hints. He dictated to me the following note upon the registration of deeds. All laws are made for the convenience of the community. What is legally done should be legally recorded, that the state of things may be known, and that wherever evidence is requisite, evidence may be had. For this reason the obligation to frame and establish a legal register is enforced by a legal penalty, which penalty is the want of that perfection and plentitude of right which a register would give. Thence it follows that this is not an objection merely legal, for the reason on which the law stands being equitable makes it an equitable objection. This, said he, you must enlarge on when speaking to the committee. You must not argue there as if you were arguing in the schools. Close reasoning will not fix their attention. You must say the same thing over and over again in different words. If you say it but once, they miss it in a moment of inattention. It is unjust, sir, to censure lawyers for multiplying words when they argue. It is often necessary for them to multiply words. His notion of the duty of a member of Parliament sitting upon an election committee was very high. Footnote up to the year 1770 controverted elections had been tried before a committee of the whole house by the grenville act which was passed in that year they were tried by a select committee johnson in the false alarm 1770 describing the old method of trial says these decisions have often been apparently partial and sometimes tyrannically oppressive in the patriot 1774 he says a disputed election is now tried with the same scrupulousness and solemnity as any other title. End of footnote. And when he was told by a gentleman upon one of those committees, who read the newspapers part of the time, and slept the rest, while the merits of a vote were examined by the council, and, as such an excuse when challenged by the chairman for such behaviour, bluntly answered, I had made up my mind upon that case, Johnson, with indignant contempt, said, if he was such a rogue as to make up his mind upon a case without hearing it, he should not have been such a fool as to tell it. I think, said Mr. Dudley Long, now north, the doctor has pretty plainly made him out to be both a rogue and a fool. Johnson's profound reverence for the hierarchy made him expect from bishops the highest degree of decorum. He was offended even at their going to taverns. A bishop, said he, has nothing to do at a tippling house. It is not indeed immoral in him to go to a tavern, neither would it be immoral in him to whip a top in Grosvenor Square. But if he did, I hope the boys would fall upon him and apply the whip to him. There are gradations in conduct. There is morality, decency, propriety. None of these should be violated by a bishop. A bishop should not go to a house where he may meet a young fellow leading out a wench. Boswell. But, sir, every tavern does not admit women. Johnson. Depend upon it, sir, any tavern will admit a well-dressed man and a well-dressed woman. They will not perhaps admit a woman whom they see every night walking by their door in the street, 
but a well-dressed man may lead in a well-dressed woman to any tavern in london taverns sell meat and drink and will sell them to anybody who can eat and drink you may as well say that a mercer will not sell silks to a woman of the town he also disapproved of bishops going to routs at least of their staying at them longer than their presence commanded respect he mentioned a particular bishop pooh said mrs thrale the bishop of is never minded at a rout footnote johnson wrote on may the first seventeen eighty there was the bishop of st asaph who comes to every place hannah moore in seventeen eighty two describes an assembly at this bishop's conceive yourself a hundred and fifty or two hundred people met together dressed in the extremity of the fashion painted as red as bacchanals ten or a dozen card-tables crammed with dowagers of quality grave ecclesiastics and yellow admirals he was elected a member of the literary club with the sincere approbation and eagerness of all present wrote mr afterwards sir william jones elected two on the same day on which lord chancellor camden was rejected two or three years later sir william married the bishop's daughter End of footnote. Boswell. When a bishop places himself in a situation where he has no distinct character, and is of no consequence, he degrades the dignity of his order. Johnson. Mr. Boswell, madam, has said it as correctly as it could be. Nor was it only in the dignitaries of the church that Johnson required a particular decorum and delicacy of behaviour. He justly considered that the clergy, as persons set apart for the sacred office of serving at the altar and impressing the minds of men with the awful concerns of a future state should be somewhat more serious than the generality of mankind and have a suitable composure of manners a due sense of the dignity of their profession independent of higher motives will ever prevent them from losing their distinction in an indiscriminate sociality and in such as affect this know how much it lessens them in the eyes of those whom they think to please by it they would feel themselves much mortified johnson and his friend beauclerk were once together in company with several clergymen who thought that they should appear to advantage by assuming the lax jollity of men of the world which as it may be observed in similar cases they carried to noisy excess johnson who they expected would be entertained sat grave and silent for some time at last turning to beauclerk he said by no means in a whisper this merriment of parsons is mighty offensive even the dress of a clergyman should be in character and nothing can be more despicable than conceited attempts at avoiding the appearance of clerical order attempts which are as ineffectual as they are pitiful dr porteous now bishop of london in his excellent charge when presiding over the diocese of chester justly animadverts upon this subject and observes of a reverend fop that he can be but half a bow footnote trust not to looks nor credit outward show the villain lurks beneath the cassocked bow churchill's poems ed seventeen seventy six two four one end of footnote addison in the spectator has given us a fine portrait of a clergyman who is supposed to be a member of his club and johnson has exhibited a model in the character of mr mudge which has escaped the collectors of his works but which he owned to me and which indeed he showed to sir joshua reynolds at the time when it was written it bears the genuine marks of johnson's best manner and is as follows footnote northcote according to hazlitt said of his character with some truth 
that it was like one of Neller's portraits. It would do for anybody. End of footnote. The Reverend Mr. Zachariah Mudge, prebendary of Exeter and vicar of St. Andrews in Plymouth, a man equally eminent for his virtues and abilities, and at once beloved as a companion and reverenced as a pastor, he had that general curiosity to which no kind of knowledge is indifferent or superfluous, and that general benevolence by which no order of men is hated or despised. His principles, both of thought and action, were great and comprehensive. By a solicitous examination of objections, and judicious comparison of opposite arguments, he attained what inquiry never gives but to industry and perspicuity a firm and unshaken settlement of conviction. But his firmness was without asperity, for, knowing with how much difficulty truth was sometimes found, he did not wonder that many missed it. The general course of his life was determined by his profession. He studied the sacred volumes in the original languages with what diligence and success. His notes upon the Psalms gave sufficient evidence. He once endeavoured to add the knowledge of Arabic to that of Hebrew, but finding his thoughts too much diverted from other studies, after some time desisted from his purpose. His discharge of parochial duties was exemplary. How his sermons were composed may be learned from the excellent volume which he has given to the public, but how they were delivered can only be known to those that heard them, for as he appeared in the pulpit, words would not easily describe him. His delivery, though unconstrained, was not negligent, and though forcible, was not turbulent. Disdaining anxious nicety of emphasis and laboured artifice of action, it captivated the hearer by its natural dignity. It roused the sluggish, and fixed the volatile, and detained the mind upon the subject without directing it to the speaker. The grandeur and solemnity of the preacher did not intrude upon his general behaviour. At the table of his friends he was a companion, communicative and attentive, of unaffected manners, of manly cheerfulness, willing to please, and easy to be pleased. His acquaintance was universally solicited, and his presence obstructed no enjoyment which religion did not forbid. Though studious he was popular, though argumentative he was modest, though inflexible he was candid, and though metaphysical yet orthodox. Footnote. London Chronicle, May the 2nd, 1769. This respectable man is there mentioned to have died on the 3rd of April that year at Coflect, the seat of Thomas Veal, Esquire, in his way to London. Boswell. End of footnote. On Friday, March the 30th, I dined with him at Sir Joshua Reynolds, with the Earl of Charlemont, Sir Annesley Stewart, Mr. Elliot of Port Elliot, Mr. Burke, Dean Marley, Mr. Langton. A most agreeable day, of which I regret that every circumstance is not preserved, but it is unreasonable to require such a multiplication of felicity. Mr. Elliot, with whom Dr. Walter Hart had travelled, talked to us of his history of Gustavus Adolphus, which he said was a very good book in the German translation. Footnote. Dr. Hart was the tutor of Mr. Elliot and of young Stanhope, Lord Chesterfield's illegitimate son. My morning hopes, wrote Chesterfield to his son at Rome, are justly placed in Mr. Hart, and the masters he will give you, my evening ones in the Roman ladies. Pray be attentive to both. End of footnote. Johnson. Hart was excessively vain. He put copies of his book in manuscript into the hands of Lord Chesterfield and Lord Granville, that they might revise it. 
how absurd it was to suppose that two such noblemen would revise so big a manuscript poor man he left london the day of publication of his book that he might be out of the way of the great praise he was to receive and he was ashamed to return when he found how ill his book had succeeded it was unlucky in coming out on the same day with robertson's history of scotland his husbandry however is good boswell so he was fitter for that than for heroic history he did well when he turned his sword into a ploughshare mr elliot mentioned a curious liquor peculiar to his country which the cornish fishermen drink they call it mahogany and it is made of two parts gin and one part treacle well beaten together i begged to have some of it made which was done with proper skill by mr elliot i thought it a very good liquor and said it was a counterpart of what is called athol porridge in the highlands of scotland which is a mixture of whisky and honey johnson said that must be a better liquor than the cornish for both its component parts are better he also observed mahogany must be a modern name for it is not long since the wood called mahogany was known in this country i mentioned his scale of liquors claret for boys port for men brandy for heroes then said mr burke let me have claret i love to be a boy to have the careless gaiety of boyish days johnson i should drink claret too if it would give me that but it does not it neither makes boys men nor men boys you'll be drowned by it before it has any effect upon you i ventured to mention a ludicrous paragraph in the newspapers that dr johnson was learning to dance a vestress footnote christmas day seventeen eighty i shall not attempt to see vestris till the weather is milder though it is the universal voice that he is the only perfect being that has dropped from the clouds within the memory of man or woman when the parliament meets he is to be thanked by the speaker End of footnote. lord charlemont wishing to excite him to talk proposed in a whisper that he should be asked whether it was true shall i ask him said his lordship we were by a great majority clear for the experiment upon which his lordship very gravely and with a courteous air said pray sir is it true you are taking lessons of vestris this was risking a good deal and required the boldness of a general of irish volunteers to make the attempt johnson was at first startled and in some heat answered how can your lordship ask so simple a question but immediately recovering himself whether from unwillingness to be deceived or to appear deceived or whether from real good humour he kept up the joke nay but if anybody were to answer the paragraph and contradict it i'd have a reply and would say that he who has contradicted it was no friend either to vestris or me for why should not dr johnson add to his other powers a little corporeal agility footnote here johnson uses his title of doctor but perhaps he does so as quoting the paragraph in the newspaper End of footnote socrates learned to dance at an advanced age and cato learnt greek at an advanced age then it might proceed to say that this johnson not content with dancing on the ground might dance on the rope and they might introduce the elephant dancing on the rope a nobleman wrote a play called love in a hollow tree footnote william the first viscount grimston boswell swift thus introduces him in his lines on poetry a rhapsody when death had finished blackmore's reign the leaden crown devolved to thee great poet of the hollow tree mr nichols in a note on this says that grimston 
wrote the play when a boy to be acted by his schoolfellows two editions were published apparently by grimston himself one bearing his name but no date and the other the date of seventeen hundred and five but no name by seventeen hundred and five grimston was twenty-two years old no longer a boy the former edition was published by bernard lintot at the cross keys fleet street and the latter by the same bookseller at the middle temple gate the grossness of a young man of birth at this period is shown by the preface the third edition with the elephant on the tightrope was published in seventeen thirty six there is another illustration in which an ass is represented bearing a coronet grimston's name is not given here but there is a dedication to the right sensible the lord flame three or four notes are added one of which is very gross the election was for st albans for which borough he was thrice returned End of footnote. he found out that it was a bad one and therefore wished to buy up all the copies and burn them the duchess of marlborough had kept one and when he was against her at an election she had a new edition of it printed and prefixed to it as a frontispiece an elephant dancing on a rope to show that his lordship's writing comedy was as awkward as an elephant dancing on a rope footnote dr t campbell records that boswell asked johnson if he had never been under the hands of a dancing master ay and a dancing mistress too says the doctor but i own to tell you i never took a lesson but one or two my blind eyes showed me i could never make a proficiency End of footnote. on sunday april the first i dined with him at mr thrale's with sir philip jennings clark and mr perkins who had the superintendence of mr thrale's brewery with a salary of five hundred pounds a year sir philip had the appearance of a gentleman of ancient family well advanced in life he wore his own white hair in a bag of goodly size a black velvet coat with an embroidered waistcoat and very rich lace ruffles which mrs thrale said were old-fashioned but which for that reason i thought the more respectable more like a tory yet sir philip was then in opposition in parliament footnote miss burney writes of him in february seventeen seventy nine he is a professed minority man and very active and zealous in the opposition men of such different principles as dr johnson and sir philip cannot have much cordiality in their political debates however the very superior abilities of the former and the remarkable good breeding of the latter have kept both upon good terms she describes a hot argument between them and continues dr johnson pursued him with unabating vigour and dexterity and at length though he could not convince he so entirely baffled him that sir philip was self-compelled to be quiet which with a very good grace he confessed dr johnson then recollecting himself and thinking as he owned afterwards that the dispute grew too serious with a skill all his own suddenly and unexpectedly turned it into burlesque End of footnote. ah sir said johnson ancient ruffles and modern principles do not agree sir philip defended the opposition to the american war ably and with temper and i joined him he said the majority of the nation was against the ministry johnson i sir am against the ministry but it is for having too little of that of which opposition thinks they have too much were i a minister if any man wagged his finger against me he should be turned out for that which is in the power of government to give at pleasure to one or to another 
should be given to the supporters of government if you will not oppose at the expense of losing your place your opposition will not be honest you will feel no serious grievance and the present opposition is only a contest to get what others have sir robert walpole acted as i would do as to the american war the sense of the nation is with the ministry the majority of those who can understand is with it the majority of those who can only hear is against it and those who can only hear are more numerous than those who can understand and opposition is always loudest a majority of the rabble will be for opposition this boisterous vivacity entertained us but the truth in my opinion was that those who could understand the best were against the american war as almost every man now is when the question has been coolly considered mrs thrale gave high praise to mr dudley long now north johnson nay my dear lady don't talk so mr long's character is very short it is nothing he fills a chair he is a man of genteel appearance and that is all footnote here johnson condescended to play upon the words long and short but little did he know that owing to mr long's reserve in his presence he was talking thus of a gentleman distinguished amongst his acquaintance for acuteness of wit one to whom i think the french expression il petit esprit is particularly he has gratified me by mentioning that he heard dr johnson say sir if i were to lose boswell it would be a limb amputated boswell End of footnote. I know nobody who blasts by praise as you do, for whenever there is exaggerated praise, everybody is set against a character. They are provoked to attack it. Now there is Pepys. You praise that man with such disproportion that I was incited to lessen him, perhaps more than he deserves. Footnote. William Weller Pepys, Esquire, one of the masters in the High Court of Chancery, and well known in polite circles. My acquaintance with him is not sufficient to enable me to speak of him from my own judgment, but I know that both at Eton and Oxford he was the intimate friend of the late Sir James Macdonald, the Marcellus of Scotland, whose extraordinary talents, learning and virtues will ever be remembered with admiration and regret. Boswell. End of footnote. His blood is upon your head. Footnote. Johnson once said to Mrs. Thrale, Why, madam, you often provoke me to say severe things by unreasonable commendation. If you would not call for my praise, I would not give you my censure, but it constantly moves my indignation to be applied to, to speak well of a thing which I think contemptible. End of footnote. By the same principle your malice defeats itself, for your censure is too violent, and yet, looking to her with a leering smile, she is the first woman in the world could she but restrain that wicked tongue of hers she would be the only woman could she but command that little whirligig footnote mrs thrale wrote miss burney in seventeen eighty is a most dear creature but never restrains her tongue in anything nor indeed any of her feelings she laughs cries scolds sports reasons makes fun does everything she has an inclination to do without any study of prudence or thought of blame and pure and artless as is this character it often draws both herself and others into scrapes which a little discretion would avoid later on she writes mrs thrale with all her excellence can give up no occasion of making sport however unreasonable or even painful i knew she was not to be safely trusted 
with anything she could turn into ridicule. End of footnote. Upon the subject of exaggerated praise, I took the liberty to say that I thought there might be very high praise given to a known character which deserved it, and therefore it would not be exaggerated. Thus one might say of Mr. Edmund Burke, he is a very wonderful man. Johnson. No, sir, you would not be safe if another man had a mind perversely to contradict. He might answer, where is all the wonder? Burke is, to be sure, a man of uncommon abilities, with a great quantity of matter in his mind, and a great fluency of language in his mouth, that we are not to be stunned and astonished by him. So you see, sir, even Burke would suffer, not from any fault of his own, but from your folly. End of section 9